This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, July 26th, the Guy in a Gorilla Suit edition. I'm Gabriel Roth, an editor at Slate and the father of Eliza, who is seven, and Leo, who is four. And I'm Carvel Wallace, a writer and podcaster in Oakland, California, and I am the father to Georgia, who is 12, and Ezra, who is 15. And hello, I am today's guest host, Dana Stevens. I'm the movie critic at Slate and also a co-host of the Slate Culture Gab Fest. I have one child, a daughter, 12, and her name is Pearl. Uh, Rebecca Lavoie will be back next week. We are thrilled to have Dana on the show with us today. We've got a question from a caller whose ex-husband is not showing up for their kid. And we've got another about a five-year-old who won't stop beating herself up. Plus, as always, we will have triumphs and fails. We'll have recommendations. And on Slate Plus today, Dana is going to tell us the best movies to watch with your kid. Uh, If you want to hear that segment, don't miss out. Join Slate Plus, slate.com slash mom and dad plus. Let's go straight into triumphs and fails. Dana, as our guest, would you like to go first? All right. Well, first of all, Gabe, I want to establish that I'm vastly underqualified to be on this podcast. I mean, when I look at the difficult questions that people send in and these real paradoxes about parenting that ultimately every person has to answer for themselves and never know if they did right, I just want to establish that I essentially don't have triumphs and fails. I just have a mediocre flat line of parenting that I try to attain every day with very rare (laughs) blips in either the positive or negative direction. Um, But I guess I'll share a a mild triumph this week, which actually has to do with the Slate podcast. So my daughter, who's 12, is a performer. She loves to sing. She does school plays and sing solos in the chorus concerts and all of that. And she is a huge fan of Mamma Mia, the first movie. And she has not yet seen the second one. So this week on another podcast I do at Slate, the Slate Spoiler Special, uh, we talked about Mamma Mia 2, June Thomas and I did. And uh, that will be going up later this week. And as a bonus track for that, we decided because my daughter is so involved in the Mamma Mia verse and has spent so many years watching and loving that movie that she would contribute a karaoke song of her own. She was going to choose a Mamma Mia track, find the karaoke and sing it. And that would sort of be the outro for the show. Um, And that was an idea we came up with together. The producer liked and she was excited about it. But, and this will have to do with one of the questions we answered today, perfectionism kicked in, right? Mm. Because to her, this mm-hmm. is this is big. It's an audition. This is her debut. She's it's ma- like, making this is the debut. biggest audience that will have heard her, right? Outside of, you know, the parents at her middle school, this is the most people, well, this is a lot more than the parents at her middle school, like potentially tens of thousands of people could hear her voice singing this song. So naturally, she got kind of nervous and uptight. We set up this little recording studio in the bathroom because it was echoey and put out a speaker and she chose the song Chiquitita. And, uh, and so I started taping her as she delivered it. And as you can imagine, she got really mad at herself. She kept turning off the recorder and stomping around saying she was awful and why was she doing it? And it was one of those things that's hard to handle because you want to help your kid get over the perfectionism, but you also don't want to just sort of especially because she's 12 and she really wants to challenge herself. I just don't want to gush about everything she does and says it's perfect. So if she makes a flub and wants to do it again, I want to encourage that. Anyway, I was sort of balancing like, is this worth it at all? And after she started to get really bratty about it, I said, well, why don't we just not do it? I can just tell the producer to cut that part and we won't do the song and you can do it another time. No, 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 absolutely not. This is my big break. I've got to do it. 
And uh, <laughs> so I guess the mild triumph would be that I just tried not to get super invested. You know, I tried not to mm. pump her up too much or to be too negative about it, to just sort of keep a straight face as I held up the, the mic to record her, the phone, and uh, and let her do what she would. And after a few fails, she actually said something that I should have thought of long before. I'm hungry. I think I need a snack. <laughs> which, Classic. Um, which was exactly right. Yeah. And, uh, and so I said, so yeah, take a break, have a snack. Maybe we'll come back to it later. And I just let it go. Uh, a couple hours later after her snack, she's hanging around playing. And I said, do you want to come back and try to retape your, your Mamma Mia song? And, uh, and she said, you know, I think those ones we did were okay. You can just send the second one. That was the best take. And wow. so something had happened in those two hours. Maybe it was just the blood sugar level, not my parenting at all, but something had happened to make her okay with this thing she'd been freaking out about before. So what did I learn from that? I don't know. I guess maybe just disengage a little in those situations. Mm. That definitely sounds like a triumph in that you successfully guided her to a happy resolution to like recording music is like that thing, that experience she was having of like recording music and suddenly everything that you do, once the tape is rolling, everything that you do suddenly sucks in a way that is now glaringly clear to you. Like that's an experience that adults have as well. I think it's a yeah, really weird Yeah, you don't experience. grow out of that. Yeah, right? exactly. Exactly. Um, listeners, if you want to hear Pearl's uh, debut and her big break, uh, sign up for Slate Plus. <laughs> Listen to the Mamma Mia episode of the spoiler special. Is it out yet? Uh, I believe it's being released on, on Friday. Comes yeah. out on Friday. But I'm not even sure that's going to be Plus. That might just be the straight up outro. I'm I, not sure. I feel like we should we should do it for Plus. I feel like I want to <laughs> make wallet. this I want to make this a triumph of Slate Plus promotion. <laughs> that's going to be my triumph. <laughs> There's also that thing there too about um, about her thinking that it was her big break, like that that extreme thing. And I I actually I feel like this is a thing specific. And Gabe, maybe you'll find this as you as your kids grow. I think this is a thing specific to children of parents who were in media who themselves want to go into media because I'm having this a lot with my son right now where he is like completely committed to filmmaking. That's what he does. He went, he was already like all in and then he went to a film camp this summer and then he was like, if it was possible for him to be more all in, he became more all in. And so now he's like super all in. And so I actually happen to be working on like a screenplay project and it's way in the early stages. I didn't even want to tell him about it, but he was asking me last night at dinner, hey, so dad, what's up at work? So I happened to mention that I was just at the beginning processes of working on this thing. And he immediately just, he spent the next like five hours just obsessing over like how, what's the story and how am I going to do this? And have you seen this movie, dad? And have you seen that? And wanting to put together, and I'm not exaggerating, he wants to put together a sizzle reel of scenes <laughs> from movies that he thinks are going to be, um, that he thinks are going to be like, influential to me in terms of getting the gestalt of this thing like a mood board but basically he wants to edit uh, like a like a video mood board for me which actually is great because he really does know a lot about movies and it gives him something to do and he's you know it's just like he's good at doing that and it makes him happy but i was i had such a hard time trying to explain to him that the way these things work is that I'm probably going to begin working on this project. There are many, 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 many faces before anything happens that is at all anything. But he was he was immediately like he went from like, here's a screenplay. Now I'm going to be famous. Basically, I being him. Now I'm going to be famous because my dad is working on a screenplay and this is my big break. It was like hard to get him to see the gradations of it. So I feel like that's almost a teenager thing too, just not knowing how to see the like the runway between the the creation of work and the explosion of fame. 
Well, it seems like if, you know, if the screenplay project continues, like this is an opportunity for him to see it in real time, right? Like Exactly. You can let yeah. him know, like, okay, I had this meeting and now I'm going to be writing the screenplay yeah. for the next X yeah. months and I've turned in the draft totally. and now I'm waiting yes. for notes and like, wow, this <laughs> yes. is not quite the way you anticipate yes. when you're a 14 right. or 15-year-old boy. <laughs> right. I'm like trying to explain to him that it's going to take years. Years before we even know if anything is happening. And he's like having a hard time with that. What were you going to say, Dana? Oh, just that I think you should still let him make you the sizzle reel because it will be oh, absolutely. cool as hell. And it just seems like a great occupation and a sweet kind of dad-son connection moment. Totally. Oh, absolutely. No, it's so great. He's really excited and I'm excited for him. And like I said, he's at a point where he definitely has ideas and visions that like, I'm like, oh, that's that's good. You know, because <laughs> he's like, he's been obsessing over this for a long enough time. But yeah. All right, I'm going to do a, a parenting fail, and then we'll come back to you, Carvel. Um, this is also to do with movies. Um, Leo and I were on a bus. We were going to his camp. And this was some new fancy bus. I've only ridden on a bus of this new fancy design this one time, but there was somehow like a screen on the bus. If you live in New York City, somehow all vehicles, all public vehicles now have screens showing you this weird kind of like garbage combination of local news and advertising all the time, like those TVs in the back of taxis. Mm -hmm. There was one of those in this bus somehow. And so it's showing a bunch of like canonical New York type imagery. And there was a shot of King Kong on the Empire State Building. And he looks at Leo, looks at this picture of King Kong on a building punching airplanes or whatever. And uh, he is very intrigued and not a little alarmed by this picture. And he's like, what is that giant gorilla doing on the Empire State Building? Because how does he know building? it's not news right. unfolding in real time? Right. That's right. There's no, he has no context for this. Um, he didn't say anything at the time, but then, and I didn't even see him noticing it. But then a minute later, he was like, Why was there a giant gorilla on a building? And it took me a minute to understand. And I realized, oh, yeah, out of the corner of my eye, I sort of noticed there was King Kong in the in the background on, on this screen. Um, and so I, I explained it to him. Oh, it's from an old movie. It's a very famous movie. It's a great movie. Someday we'll watch it. It's called King Kong. It's about a giant gorilla. They bring him back from the jungle and they bring him to New York and he gets really mad and he smashes some stuff and he falls in love with a lady and the end. I didn't tell him about the real end. And... Um, he was like, oh, oh, is it a scary movie? And I said, well, it's a little scary. And I guess at one point it probably was a scary movie, but but nowadays in the pantheon of scary movies, it probably doesn't figure very highly. Um, and and he was a little worried. And he said, how is there such a big gorilla? And I said, oh, it's not really a big gorilla. That's just how they make it look in the movie. It's actually just a big guy in a gorilla costume. So then he finishes making the movie. And he takes off his costume and he goes home and he's just a regular guy. And he like eats dinner with his wife and kids and is a regular guy. Okay. And so we dropped that for a little while. And then it was two days later that I was putting him to bed and he said, I'm scared about King Kong. And I said, but mm -hmm. we talked about that and, and about how it's not really a real gorilla. It's just a guy in a costume in a movie, right? And he said, how big is the guy? Is he as big as our house? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I realized I, you never know what the baseline assumptions yeah. are, right? Right. You've got to say it's a small yeah. building. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> I forgot Very to explain that it wasn't really the Empire State Building. And that when I said it's a big guy, he thought it was a guy who was really that big, that you could climb the Empire State Building and punch an airplane. And in a way, that must have been scarier than when it was a gorilla, right? Why is there this giant dressing up in a gorilla costume climbing a building? So then I explained to him that when I said big guy, I didn't mean it was a giant. I just meant that. And I tried to explain that they would make a small model of a building so it would look like a big building. But that kind of relative scaling of, of sizes and, and the way you would do movie magic in that way um, – it was hard. I couldn't get that across, but he did in the end understand that it was it was just a, a big butt regular human sized guy. <laughs> I'm going to send you oh, for your son man. some photos of the making of Godzilla, which was also a guy in a in a suit with small buildings. And there's some great backstage kind of outtake photos where you just see the guy with essentially Godzilla rolled down to his waist level while yeah. he drinks a cup of tea next to a small building. That's a really Explains good idea. That's a that's a really good <laughs> idea. Show him some some context. Um, I wound up telling him that it was when I said a big guy, it was just a guy about the size of his Uncle Davis, who is a big guy. And now I think he has the idea that his Uncle Davis played King Kong in the movie. But that at least is less scary than the idea that, <laughs> that it was some with. giant. That you can work with that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. All right, Carvel, how about you? Triumph or fail this week? Uh, this has been a very, very intense week, actually, in the Bay Area um, because of there was a murder on the <clears throat> BART station uh, platform where Georgia has to transfer to go to school. Uh. And it appears right now that it was a targeted murder um, of a white supremacist um, murdering or stabbing basically two black teenage girls. And uh. um, so the vibe has been very intense. Georgia has been terrified. And we there were protests and supremacists showed up at the protests it was a whole thing i was there i went to the protest and all that so the week overall has been intense and one of the things uh, about this is that right before this happened um you know on the day it happened georgia joe and i talked about how we were going to tell her but we didn't have to tell her because she found out from instagram and then called me absolutely sobbing and then joe and i actually ended up leaving work to go spend the day with her which we were fortunate to be able to do. And we spent the day basically just letting her talk through all of her fears. And it's just it's just a terrifying thing to be a 12-year-old girl and to feel like you have so many things to worry about in the world. And what was interesting about that is that two days earlier, my, my fail had happened and it was a comedic fail. And I was thinking about how these two things are related. So two days earlier, I was Georgia was going to have a sleepover at her friend's house, and all of her kids, all of the kids now are like reaching this age where they're beginning to act like young teenagers. Kids that we've known since they were like preschoolers are now. Some of them are beginning to smoke pot, and we see it on Instagram. And some of them are like starting to like date older guys, and it's some of the everyone's doing stuff. Everyone's turning into a teenager, and it's you know unsettling. And at the same time, we trust Georgia, but we also are keeping an eye on Georgia. So so Georgia is going to spend the night at a friend's house who we think, Joe and I think, is a little bit further down this path than we're super into, but she's still a good kid and with good parents, but you never know. You know, it's kind of like you're keeping an eye on it, but you know that kids are telling you what, you know, they're... There's a little bit of an Eddie Haskell situation with all these teenagers, especially in Berkeley, where they're like super nice to your face and then super woke and funny and interesting and smart. And then you f look at their Instagrams and find out they're up to ridiculous shit. Anyway, so Georgia got in the car to go to the sleepover and she was all done up. 
when she got in the car, she was like fully lip gloss on and her edges were like super, you know, and I was like, wow, what's going on, Georgia? Like, uh, I thought you were just going over to your friend's house. She's like, yeah. I'm like, what are you guys going to do? She's like, oh, we're just going to, we're just going to hang out in the house. I was like, you did your hair that way to just hang out in the house. And she was like, I mean, I don't know, dad. You know, And I was like, all right, fine. Just, you know, so so we go, I drop her off and she's like, okay, dad, I'll let you know if you, when I'm not sure if we're going to sleep over tonight or if you'll pick me up or whatever. So that night there was a little bit of miscommunication about when I was going to get her, but it kind of put me on edge because it felt like she was sort of being dishonest about where they were. And she said we were here, but then it looked like they were here, but then it was like, oh, we'll take Bart here, but then pick us up here. It was just, it just felt a little bit like she was massaging the truth, which is age appropriate and also had me a little stressed out so then the next day comes around she ends up staying over there the next day comes around and joe is supposed to be picking her up joe's on pickup duty which means that i don't have to be involved in the coordination i'm not on the phone calls i'm not in the text threads it's this time it's joe but then middle of the day joe texts me and she's like have you heard from your daughter i'm like no i'm like do you know where she is she's like no her location is off because the kids have location on their phone And so I'm like, what? She's like, yeah, her location is off. And I'm like, okay. So I text Georgia like, hey, what's going on? Who's picking you up? What time are we coming to you? What's what's the deal? No answer. So then we text the mother of the girl. Oh, um, hey, we're just trying to get in touch with Georgia. No answer. So we text Georgia's best friend. Hey, what's going on? No answer. So now 35 minutes, 40 minutes goes by. An hour goes by, and we're st- and so Joe and I decide to get on the phone. It's serious enough that we go from text to the phone, and Joe's at work. So we get on the phone, and we're talking the whole thing through, and Joe says, like, um, maybe if – she says, where are you right now? I'm like, oh, I'm actually, like, you know, not too far away from their house. She's like, do you maybe want to drive by? I'm like, yeah, I think I have to. So I finish up my work session. I was, like, actually co-writing with a friend, and I was like, I got to go. My daughter's kind of MIA. It's a little stressful. And we're starting – Joe and I are now, like, talking about the different things that could be going on and what we fear. And we know that there's, like, some boys that they've been sort of maybe wanting to hang out with. And we know that there's discussion. There had been a situation a few weeks ago where someone had – to another parent had discovered that – Georgia and a friend were talking about wanting to smoke weed on Instagram, and but Georgia said she had. It's just like all, it's just all these fears, and so I get in the car and I go over there, and like the whole time I'm there, I'm just thinking about all the things there are to be afraid of about what's happening with her. And so I pull up to the house and I ring the doorbell, and there's no answer. And so then I wait and I ring the doorbell again, and there's no answer. And I'm thinking about how I've been coming to drop Georgia off and pick her up from this house since like she was in preschool. You know, these have been her best friends since then. And and now they're teenagers or preteens and who knows what's going on. So the third time I ring the bell, I finally answer. I'm imagining like boys hiding, climbing out the back window, hiding. Like just every terrible thing that I did when I was a teenager and that Joe did when she was a teenager, we just assume that's what's happening inside. And so the door, and so the door, the buzzer finally happens. I go in the gate. I walk up to the door. The dog comes out. I greet the dog. I go inside the house. <clears throat> the, the three girls are in their pajamas sitting in a semicircle on a porch in the sunlight reading to each other (laughs) from this book. (laughs) And the mother, who's an old friend, has basically is there washing dishes. And she's like, oh, they were on their phones all morning, so I had them turn their phones off because they needed, (laughs) they'd been on screens all morning. And I told them they had to do an hour of reading before they watched any more TV. And so this is what they're doing. They're doing their hour of reading. And And it was such a weird mind thing because... In the, in the span of like, you know, 15 hours, I had created this whole terrifying narrative about what my daughter was up to. 
And then I get there and she's, all of her friends are sitting in pajamas reading to each other. Like literally reading out aloud from a book, The Hate You Give, which is a great book, by the way. And uh, it was like, and I got there and I was like, oh. And then I had to play play it off like I didn't come, you know, I tried to act like I didn't come like rushing in on panic mode. Um, but then ultimately I did talk to the mom and she pulled me aside and was like, I'm so sorry. I, I, I'm so, I, I forgot that, that you may be trying to get in touch with them. And so I just had them turn their phones off cause they had been on them all morning and it was annoying. And it was like, God, this is the age we're at where on the one hand you have all these fears about your kid. On the other hand, I got there and they just looked like kids. They were just little kids, but they were like vacillating back and forth. But then on the third hand, you have this thing that happens at Bart that is really this terribly adult thing and they have to deal with all of it at the same time. So I felt like that was a fa- in some ways a failure in our part because I, we got so worked up and there was no reason to. And it was totally, I was the one leading the charge. George, Joe was like, are you sure? I mean, maybe. And I was like, yeah, I don't know. I just have a feeling. You know, I was the one sort of like holding the panic stick. And then we got there and it was like, Nothing. And so I just sat with them for like an hour <laughs> while they read. And and then at some point, George was like, why would you come by, Dad? And I was like, oh, I just wanted to say hi. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that is quite a story. Yeah. It's not really completely a fail either. I feel like what what could you have done that would have been a triumph in that situation? You, you know, you got to follow your gut and, and be concerned about the things that you're concerned about. I guess. I mean, well, that's the hard part, too, is like, I mean, I think the only part that feels like a fail is that I had created this this horrific narrative that was like super mistrustful in some ways of my daughter only to have it be like, I don't know. I I feel like I kind of let my imagination run away with me. And I guess that that's I would like to do less of that. But then as a parent, you always have to be careful. It's just such a weird time. It's a fail. It's a fail within yourself. Maybe it's an internal to Carvel fail. You know, if you had gone storming into the friend's house saying, what the hell is going on here? That might have been more of a parenting (laughs) fail. But you walked it back. I knew better than that. (laughs) Right. It's a fail in in terms of the inner world that you have provided for yourself to live in. Like you've you've provided a really horrible inner world for yourself for a little while. And and then you get the joy of getting to emerge from it into the sunlight where the girls are reading on the porch. (laughs) Yeah, it was good though. But I do want to say though, ser- on a serious note, this thing about this this girl Nia Williams is is a the story is beginning to gain traction, but it's been a little bit dismaying to me to see how slowly it's taken before this has become something of a national story. But it happened three days ago here in uh, or Sunday night actually in Oakland, and it's uh, a terrifying story and really intense. And it coincides with a white supremacist rally that was scheduled to take place in downtown Oakland the next day but did not because enough Oakland people, myself included, showed up that ultimately nothing happened. So um, if you're interested, look up the story, Nia Williams, and um, find out what's going on. Uh, We'll put that on our show page and in the Facebook group. Um, Parenting Triumph is uh, showing up in downtown Oakland and uh, kicking out the Nazis. So good work there. Well, that's for... Yeah, that's precisely why we did it. Georgia was really afraid. And I, I go back and forth on street stuff. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. But I think me and all of our parenting friends, because other friends of ours were there, I felt a really strong... I mean, one of the things I told Georgia before I went is like, you have to know that there is a community here to protect you, that you're not alone. And I know it feels terrifying right now for you and your friends, but like, you have to see with your own eyes that all of Oakland is here to keep this from happening to you and that we're going to show up. So it was that that felt like I don't know of a triumph, but it felt like the right thing to do as a parent. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Before we move on, let's do the business. As always, if you have a question that you would like us to answer, you can call and leave a message at 424-255-7833 or you can send us an email at momanddadatslate.com. Uh, you should join the Slate Parenting Facebook group. Lots of great, active, lively discussion. Other parents there talking about the show and sharing their own triumphs, fails, recommendations, parenting problems, and more. Just go on Facebook and search for Slate Parenting. Sometimes I say the URL, but I don't think anyone actually types out a whole thing with a bunch of slashes. It's much easier just to go on Facebook, where you probably already are anyway, if you're like the rest of the world, uh, and search for Slate Parenting. On Slate Plus today, we're going to talk to Dana Stevens about what movies to watch with your kid, what movies she watches with her kid. And, and um, you know, as the world's greatest film critic, uh, she is likely to have all sorts of uh, good and surprising answers. If you want to hear that segment uh, and another like it every week, uh, just sign up for Slate Plus. Uh, it's Slate's paid membership program. Just $35 for your first year helps us make the show and you get uh, an extended ad-free version of this and your other favorite Slate shows every week. Uh, just go to slate.com slash Plus today. Okay, let's go. Let's take a question from a listener. This one came to us via email. It's being read for us by Slate's own Shasha Leonard. Dear mom and dad are fighting. I left my 10-year-old daughter's dad when she was two. He was a very secretive alcoholic slash addict, which led him spending all our wedding money and then accruing a huge amount of credit card debt, some in my name. I left him after my mom ran a credit report on him because she was suspicious. He did get sober soon after, but has been an inconsistent presence in my daughter's life. When she was five, he moved six hours away with his wife and her three kids. He then formally adopted her youngest, and they also have a two-year-old daughter together. He has been a great father to them. He also very rarely pays his child support, an issue that I've chosen to ignore. My daughter has always visited them on the holidays and for two weeks in the summer. At first, there was quite a bit of tension between the two families, but now we are cordial, and she likes visiting and talks about how much she misses them. My two questions. My daughter has started asking more probing questions on why we split up and isn't satisfied with a generic answer. My inclination is not to tell her anything else, but is that the right thing as she gets older? The second part is that it is very hard for me to not become visibly angry when he cancels a visit or repeatedly says he will call and then doesn't. Recently, when he canceled, I told her it was okay to be angry, and she yelled at me saying, I'm not mad, daddy loves me, and if he could be there, he would. I've not gone down that road since. I have a feeling he is going to cancel her summer visit in which he promised to take her to horseback riding camp. How do I comfort her if this occurs without inadvertently condemning her dad's actions? Thanks. Eventually, it's all going to... I'm going to start by saying eventually it's all going to come out in the wash. I remember something that my mother said to me about my father <laughs> when I was a kid. My, my parents were never married. Their relationship was contentious when it existed but it didn't exist a lot but when it did it was a little it was a little contentious and so uh what, at some point my mother said and then as a little kid i was like my dad's the greatest my dad my dad 
took us to the go kart. So he's and my mother one time said, she said, uh, you really like him now, but one day you'll see the truth. And it was like one of those bitter, you know, she was like probably smoking a Salem, you know, I mean, it was like one of these bitter moments from my childhood that I always remember. And um, I didn't know what she was talking about then. But of course, now I'm a grown man and I have a much more nuanced understanding of what everyone, how everyone's behavior was in those years in my childhood. And I think the same thing is going to happen with your daughter. That's kind of how that works. And 10 is when the thing about 10 is that so much of real adult life stuff is beginning to intrude on your childhood that it's true that sometimes around that age, 10, 11, 12 kids can get a little defensive and jumpy because they're not ready for all that stuff. And I think the thing the mother is struggling with is the feeling that she's responsible for making the child know the truth. And I would say that you probably aren't as responsible for that as you think. It's actually okay. I'm going to throw out this notion. It's actually okay. If your daughter has a, has a misconception about her father right now. She might even have it for a good reason. She might have it because she needs it. She might have it because another thing may be too painful for her, and she's protecting herself from that. You don't have to disabuse her of any of all notions of his behavior right now because it will come out in time. I have no doubt about it. That's That's the thing that always strikes me about these divorced, usually divorced dad situations where the dad like you know the the dad is clearly behaving in some shitty way and the mother's and the kid doesn't quite see it and the mother's like how much should i tell my kid that her dad is a dick <laughs> and my, i'm always like your kid's gonna figure it out if he really is you know because that's the way this works and if he does cancel on um camp then that's gonna be a big signal to her and i think as a parent it's probably better to to when the kid reaches their point of frustration and pain to be there to talk them through it and support them i think it's better to do that than it is to try and hurry your kid to this realization and i think sometimes we as divorced parents i know rebecca and i talk about this a lot and i always say that whenever you can you should try and avoid shit talking the other parent even if they deserve shit talking which they always do <laughs> you sh- whenever you can, you should try and avoid shit talking the other parent to the kid. And the only time you should shit talk, quote unquote, the other parent to the other kid and even be gentle is when the kid is having the experience that this person is difficult and they need validation for that. That's when you say, yes, you're right. This is not how a person who loves someone should treat you. This is not what it's supposed to be like. This is, But it has to be to validate and support the kid. But if the kid hasn't reached that, then I think that it's kind of, just too painful to be told over and over again that the person you love is trash. That's not something you need at 10. So as hard as it is, and I know it's really hard, as hard as it is as as, an, as a parent to somewhat refrain, I think that restraint for now is good because more will be revealed. On the second, and your kid, you have to trust that your kid is going to see the truth because she is. And the second thing is that that means that you personally have to have some safe place to vent your frustration, which is valid and legit. And that, and you do need that, and you have to find that. But I think it's, I think we have to be careful about making our children that place, which is something that happens in, 
in divorce relationships and that leads to like adultifying the child and all kinds of like attachment stuff that just isn't ideal. So we're trying to, we kind of want to avoid that. The third thing I would say is, and I recommend this in, in all divorce situations that are contentious, if it's possible for any kind of counseling or therapy to look into that. It's not always with our healthcare, it's almost never doable, but if it is, it can be helpful. I know that our kids got a lot out of just being able to have someone listen to them who was not, who did not have an emotional stake in the adults. And that actually ended up being the thing that neither Joe nor I could do at the beginning. We couldn't listen to them because we had our own emotional stuff. And that was normal for us. We needed someone to listen to us. The kids needed someone to listen to them. We weren't quite the people to listen to our kids yet because we, we were still too raw from the thing. And so if there is in any way there can be a kind of family counseling or therapy situation, I would also add that on top. Yeah, that was great. I mean, as a non-divorced parent, I don't know that I have a huge amount to add, except that addiction figures into this question in a way that seems significant, right? I mean, the father mm. was an alcoholic and addict, and that's part of why they broke up. He's now sober. And actually, the fact that he's now sober seems to me to open up the space. If it really is true that he's he's sticking with it, right? He might not be doing great in the dad department, but he is actually staying on the wagon. Then mm. If the kid is pressing for reasons, right, it sounds like she is ready to know more because the mom says she's not satisfied with generic explanations of why they split up. So it seems like you might be able to sort of slowly start, you know, giving her that information that, you know, your dad had this problem. And then, you know, I would be like Googling and looking up, like, how do you talk to your kid about addiction and recovery? But I think that might be something for her to know about why the breakup happened that will help her understand that it's not her fault, that her father has this problem, but that he's struggling with it. I don't know if a 10-year-old is quite old enough to grasp that, but it sounds like she's ready to get at least some glimpse of it. And then also mm -hmm. maybe for later on, she would be able to be helped by organizations like Alateen, you know, places that are for mm -hmm. the children of alcoholics. That seems right. That seems like a good thought. Um, there's another part of the question that I'm noticing where the, the mother says, it's very hard for me to not become visibly angry when he cancels a visit or repeatedly says he will call and then doesn't. And I mean, number one, yeah, no doubt. Like if I were in that situation, if my kid's other parent was screwing them around like that, I would be fucking furious. That would be like, how dare you do that? It would break my heart and it would make me furious. And at the same time, um, it, as the mother says, in this case, that's not how the kid is reacting. The kid is not furious at the dad when the, when the dad says he will call and then doesn't. The kid says, no, I'm not mad, dad. I know he loves me. I know he would call if he could. It must be something really important. The kid is rationalizing or is making up excuses. That's mm -hmm. how the kid wants to react to the way her dad is being. Um, and it seems really important, and I think I, I get the sense from the letter that the, the mom knows this. It's really important not to let your anger overwrite the response that the kid is trying to have. This is part of what Carvel was saying as well. I feel like as I see my kids get older, especially Eliza, who is now at an age where there's a bunch of stuff that affects her and that she feels strongly about. And it's she's now at an age where it's important for me to disinvest in that stuff, to invest in her feelings and her responses mm. and how she's doing, but not invest in like the outcomes. If she, mm. it, it's all smaller scale stuff than this. We she, fortunately for her, she's not in a situation like this one. But if she really hopes that something's going to go her way. Um, I want to be there for her with the feelings, but I don't want to be there invested in rooting for the particular outcome that she needs. Um, and this is a case where it will be very, very hard 
to do that. It would be very hard to disinvest in like, is my ex-husband going to treat my kid right or is my ex-husband going to flake on her for the 100th time? But the more you can disinvest in that outcome, the more you can say, well, my ex-husband is going to do whatever thing he's going to do and my investment is in my kid and her feelings and how she copes with whatever the terrain is, how she copes with whatever crap life is handing her at this particular moment, um, the better you will be able to be a parent to her. And it's hard because he's not just her dad. He's also someone you were in a marriage with and you have an intense relationship with or had an intense relationship with and have an intense connection to. Um, but his behavior at this point is not something you can do anything about. All you can do something about is your kid's response and, and how you can help her with it. Yeah, I want to. Yeah, I I think that's exactly right. And also, I want to pick up on something that Dana said, which is which is I, I think I sort of missed the first time, but now that I'm thinking about it, it, is a really big deal. Which is that this is a family dealing with alcoholism as a whole. And one of the things I think people don't fully understand about alcoholism is that alcoholism does not end when the person quits drinking. It actually it continues long after that. In fact, you could even argue that it continues the whole time, and that the alcohol itself is just like the container, the sign of symptom of the existence of alcoholism. And one of the reasons that people quit drinking is because they have to deal with the underlying issues that lead to alcoholism. And it's hard to do that when you're drinking. But when a, a newly sober person in the first five years of sobriety is still technically kind of a newcomer and you're still dealing with someone who is an alcoholic. And to that end, I, I, pe people have a lot of feelings about 12-step programs, which is one of the reasons I almost never mention them anymore because people feel a lot of different ways about them. But I will say that in my personal experience, Al-Anon and Alateen can be super helpful because they are they do help people realize that that there there is a specific experience of of loving a person who is an alcoholic that has to do with some of the stuff that's written in this letter. And I think if you feel like you're dealing with it, that it's just happening to you and that you have to sort of solve all this stuff in order for everything to be right, that causes a lot of pain and suffering for you. And part of what um, programs that are around being in a family with an alcoholic are about are helping you see the larger picture, that it's similar to dealing with a person who has some other disease. Like, it's not like, it's not like, you need to personally keep these symptoms from happening. It's more about how do you deal with the fact that this is part of who this person is and they're going to get better. And, and hopefully if the dad does stay on the wagon that like things will improve and amends will be made and behaviors will change and all these kinds of things will happen. But in the interim, I just I cannot stress enough that alcoholism continues to impact the family, whether or not the person is drinking. All right. Um Thanks so much for this letter. Um, I hope the dad does take her to horseback riding camp. But if he doesn't, I think you actually know what your job is. Your job is to help her cope with that disappointment and, and be a good, loving, sympathetic mother. Um, sounds like you are. Let's move on to another question. This one came to us over voicemail. Hi, Mom and Dad. I am the crazy aunt of a five-year-old. And uh, she's almost six. And the other day I took her to play tennis. And she's never played before. So I was trying to teach her how to hold the racket, how to do this. And I was saying, oh, you're doing really well. You're doing really good. And she kept, when she couldn't get the balls, she just kept throwing a little, I wouldn't call it a tantrum. She just said, I suck. I'm never going to be good at this. Is this so hard? I don't want to play anymore. 
in, I told her she's never played tennis before, and for someone who's first day out, she's pretty, she's doing really well, and she wouldn't listen to me, and she just kept saying, I can't do it. And then that same day, she was trying to figure out how to tie her shoe, and after one failed attempt, she says, I don't know how to do this, I suck. So how do I get her to stop using that negative language, because I explained to her that nobody knows everything and we all have to learn along the way and it just takes practice and that she's doing really well, but she just won't have it. She just wants to know that she sucks. I don't know what to do. I don't have kids. I only see her um, every weekend. So, oh, please help. I'm trying to be a good aunt here. Thank you. Okay, first of all, I'd love to get a call from the crazy aunt. Uh, thank you for listening to our show, if you are not just calling us out of the ether. Um, and uh, it's nice that you're so invested in your niece uh, that you call into parenting podcasts um, to talk about problems that uh, you and, and your niece are having in your relationship. Um, I think that's great. Uh, I've, like, I've seen my kids both act like this plenty of times. And, and there's the famous advice based on Carol Dweck's research in her book Mindset about how you're not supposed to praise the kid for success. You're supposed to praise them for effort. You're supposed to say that was you are working really hard on your tennis swing and not that was a great tennis swing. Uh, we try and do that as much as possible. Um, does it work sometimes? Sure. Does it keep them from saying I suck when they make a mistake? Not really. It's super hard to be a kid and, and you are pretty bad at everything most of the time. Um, so some of this I feel like is just par for the course, but maybe Dana has some better advice. Gosh, I mean, I think uh, as someone who has a long history of trauma in the attempt to play racket sports, I would say that maybe <laughs> this kid, five, six, isn't that how old she is? Five going on six? Yeah. Is maybe a little too young to make a racket connect with a ball. You know, maybe that is, is not the right activity to be doing with her uh, yet until she gets a little bit more patience and, and coordination. Um and I'm just thinking if, if that was happening with me and a kid, niece, daughter, whoever, that I would probably tell them my own stories. Maybe I would tell them the story mm. of me getting dropped from squash class. In college, I tried to take squash as an elective because I wanted to learn to play squash with this cool girl I knew who was always off to play squash in the courts. And uh, and I was asked to drop the class after one six-week session because I was so bad <laughs> that no one could learn when they were paired with me because I couldn't even hit the ball once. And, uh, and so this PE teacher who had at first been very encouraging, like, come on, Dana, you can do it. And, you know, have a growth mindset like Carol Dweck tells you to. Finally just said, look, it would really just be useful for everyone else in the class if you could just drop it. <laughs> so, I mean, whether or not you have a story like that, I think it's probably useful for a kid to hear, look, grownups, I mean, when they were kids and also when they are grownups, struggle with this exact same thing. And these skills are very hard. And, you know, maybe choose something for her to do like playing kickball or something where she's a little bit less likely to um, to have those frustrations. Yeah, I imagine in, if you're trying to teach a, a five-year-old to play tennis that there's a particular – like I imagine that the people who professionally teach small children to play tennis like start with, okay – I'm going to throw it at you from a foot away, and if you can connect with the thing at all, then we're going to cheer and go out for ice cream or something like that. Like, I imagine there's a way that you can break it down into steps so simple that even a five-year-old can complete them two-thirds of the time. Um, but more broadly, the the problem of the kid who likes to beat themselves up, I mean, I will say it, it, she might be nervous in front of her cool aunt, right? Like, she might be... 
it might be humiliating to be in a like I, I'm speculating here about the cool aunt relationship as someone who had a cool who has a cool aunt, but who as a small child like had a cool aunt who loomed extremely large in my mind as the person who I wanted mm. to grow up to impress or to date or in some way to be like the idea that that person would then see me flailing at a tennis ball in my five-year-old way, that that doesn't feel great necessarily. Maybe the job of the cool aunt is not to teach you a new sport, but is to like, as my cool aunt did, take you out for uh, ice cream sundaes in her convertible. Just a suggestion, but, but one that works very well for <laughs> you me. You can't drink an ice cream sundae wrong. No, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So first step, chop the top off your car. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, I feel like I feel like, yeah, this is a broader question about how to deal with a kid who who tends to overreact to moments of failure. And uh, it is true that, I mean, the thing I was thinking about the tennis thing is that don't they use these big foam balls instead of the little ones at the beginning? Like, I feel like I've seen tennis co- camp people around my neighborhood using, like, they have a whole technique. I guess that's the point. And so, um, but this isn't just about the tennis. This is about the tying the shoes and the thing. And every other thing is probably going to be like this for this kid because they're having a hard time. And it doesn't sound to me necessarily, although it could be because kids are weird. It could be that, you know, the kid's doing that thing where they're like, really hard on themselves because they feel like they want to impress the aunt and they want and when they don't do well they want the aunt to know to know that like they're not doing well because they're trying really hard and they're hard on themselves and they're perfectionist and they want to impress the aunt that's a fact that's pro- that's a possibility but it's also a possibility and we saw this with our oldest one more so than our youngest although our youngest did it in different ways but we saw this feeling of this like all or nothing approach this feeling of it's either I am I do things expertly the first time or I'm a complete failure mm. and a real inability to recognize the thing in between. But and so there's this real difficulty with those approaches and like it's way early to tell there are techniques for dealing with that. One of the things that occurred to me is that when my kids say when they were little and they'd say, I suck at this, I would say, wow you do feel like you suck at this, <laughs> but you don't. And here, you know what I mean? But like there's that acknowledgement of the feeling is really important because I think a lot of times parents, we, I get really like tense if kids say something I don't like and I want to shut it down immediately. This is like, you know what I mean? Like I suck. No, you don't. You're great. No, my God, no. You know, it's like, it makes me so nervous. I'm acting, reacting from a place of my own discomfort with the idea that they're struggling and I want to shut that down. And generally that's not where my best parenting comes from. So I've learned as a habit to sort of acknowledge that there's the existence of a feeling because every feeling is fine. And so I get to say, yeah, it does feel that way. And but, you know, here's why it feels that way, because it is really hard or and it does feel like you suck because you don't you don't feel like you're doing it the way people on TV do it or but you're doing really well for someone who's just learning what you're doing better than I did when I was learning kind of thing. That's the kind of tone I used to like to take. You're the certainly doing gonna... better than Dana Stevens when she was in college <laughs> trying, to, trying to learn. Yeah. Squash. Yeah, exactly. and Dana just Stevens hold me be... up as a baseline. Yeah. Every kid will feel great. And, Yes, yes, you're doing you're doing better than the person who would become the greatest film critic on the planet. <laughs> yeah, I don't need her. your squash. Look at her now; she, she's both a great film critic and an Olympic champion in squash. <laughs> I have still never um, connected with a squash ball in my life. But um, but what I was going to say was, um, but the other thing I'm just going to very gently plant the seed because I don't want anyone to jump to conclusions or go dramatic. But I will say, and I only know this because we're dealing with this with our now 15 year old is that 
the inability to separate out, to only go to extremes and to never see the middle ground is one of the signs of kids with ADD or ADHD. It's just one of them. I'm not diagnosing your kid. I'm just saying that that's one of the things that happens early on is that kids have a really, kids with ADD have a really hard time sort of thinking slowly through things. So they either want to have the excellent answer right away or else it's the worst thing in the world. But that sign of, that, that tendency for extreme thinking is something. So I would keep an eye on if this kid seems to have extreme thinking around a lot of things. If it's never just like, oh, this is fine or this is good, but it's like, this is the worst food ever and anyone who eats it is trash or this is the best food ever and I have to have it all the time or I hate this movie and this movie's terrible and everyone should turn off the TV and no one should watch it or I love this movie and we have to watch it a hundred times. These are signs, Think these are things that sometimes show up in kids with ADD and so that may be something to keep an eye on in the ensuing years and I'm really adamant about like not necessarily feeling like the kid does one thing and so now it's time to rush them in to get tested and medicate them but I say that more for you as an aunt to recognize you may not personally be able to fix this because it may be a slightly bigger problem than you can fix and so at that point what you're trying to do is just keep the kid from having a shitty experience and and it and you're such a good and loving aunt that I think that like you know I think that the kids are really lucky to have you. <laughs> and um, and I think you're doing a great job, actually. I just wanted to say that, too. That was good. I have one tiny little coda to that, which is that it might be fun and instructive to do an activity with your niece where you're learning a new skill that you're not good at, you know, and she sees oh, that adults good. also struggle with that. Like this last weekend, we our family was at a was staying at a farm for a day and I was learning to skip stones, which is something that both my daughter and her father are excellent at and have all these different techniques and they can make the stones jump. And it's very rare that they don't skip a stone when they try. I, myself, maybe this is related to my squash fail, have never skipped a stone in my life until this past weekend. I skipped my first stone. Bravo. And by the time we left that lakeside, I, I probably skipped like three out of the five stones that I would attempt. But, you know, I don't know that my daughter was paying particular attention to my stone skipping <laughs> process, but she got to see me doing something that I suck at, you know, and sort of managed to master to some degree anyway. So maybe an activity like, with the kid, you know, where you're learning to knit or something and you don't know how to do it. That's a great suggestion. I really like that. Um, Take that, squash teacher. Yes. Um, thank you very much, Crazy Ant. We appreciate your call. Time to move on to the segment of the show that we call Recommendations. That's the segment where we recommend things to you. Carvel, you want to go first? What do you recommend? I'm recommending um, a book that Joe was reading and says that she recognizes it. It's actually written for teens, but teenagers are not. Books aren't a good way to reach teens, so that's lame. But Joe said it was actually really good for her as a parent. The book is called No Way, that's W-E-I-G-H, A Teen's Guide to Positive Body Image, Food, and Emotional Wisdom. Um, and part of the reason we were looking at that is because both of our kids are having some body image stuff. And, you, you know, obviously having a 12-year-old girl is like, that's a whole thing. And then actually our son, I feel like, is dealing with some of that where he feels like, oh, I don't I don't look athletic like the other boys and I want to look that way. And we, you know, have – we've done a lot of work around that, trying to keep that in perspective and deal with that and outline – lay out the sort of social things and all that. But what Joe said she really liked about this book was that it was it gave some, some very practical direct advice and it helped just contextualize the struggle for her as a parent. It's part work 
workbook, part textbook, part kind of essay, part sort of how-to. And uh, she really liked it and told me to recommend it on the podcast, so I will. It's called No Way, A Teen's Guide to Positive Body Image, Food, and Emotional Wisdom. Nice. Um, I'm going to recommend a series of books that Eliza is super into these days. Uh, I have not read them, but I have looked at them and can confirm that this is a high grade of children's literature. Uh, and and the way she wolfs them down uh, is very impressive. Um, the series is called The Witches of Benevento. It's about a town apparently in Italy where uh, the town is famous for its witches, so the children of the town have to be clever and wily to evade the clutches of the witches. Um, so it's a kind of lively, funny adventure story. It's got great pictures. Um, the series is called The Witches of Benevento. The author is John Bemelmans Marciano, who is the son of the Ludwig Bemelmans who did the Madeline books and, and who himself continued that series. But this is his own series and he is apparently coming into his own. The illustrations are by Sophie Blackall, The Witches of Benevento. Oh, love Sophie Blackall. Oh, yeah. She's the Ivy and Bean illustrator, right? Right. She's fantastic. That's why they look familiar. Yeah, She's great one pictures. of the Caldecott, I think. She's like a major, major illustrator. That's awesome. That looks really good. Nice. Uh, okay. Well, since I'm the movie critic and that's the value add that I have to bring to this podcast, I will recommend- No, you bring so much value <laughs> beyond your cinematic expertise. But go on. I like where you're going with this. Go on. So even though we are going to be talking about movies with kids uh, in our Slate Plus segment, I will talk here just about two movies that are specifically out in theaters right now that you could see with different ages of kids. It's possible these movies have already come up in y'all's discussions on this show, but Eighth Grade is one, which opened a couple weekends ago, and is the directorial debut of Bo Burnham, who was known primarily as a stand up comic and kind of a song parodist before this. And he suddenly took this complete career jag and wrote and directed a movie about middle schoolers, which stars real middle schoolers, uh, all of them unknown, at least to me, and uh, and could, I think, profitably be seen with actual middle schoolers. Um, I think my daughter might be a little young for it. She's just going into sixth grade. And since it's kind of about, I mean, it's, it's rated R probably because of a couple of slightly raunchy things. But um, but really, it's a very gentle story about social awkwardness and a girl's last week in eighth grade and her kind of contending with various uh, humiliating challenges. It's also a lot about social media in a really smart way. Bo Burnham is quite young. I think he's in his mid-20s himself. And he really, I think, gets how social media works among adolescents and in their socialization. And it's just really funny and endearing and something that you could enjoy with your kids if you have a fairly high tolerance for embarrassment, because you're going to have to watch a few uh, very, very cringeful things happen, as one does in eighth grade. So eighth grade is, is one. And then maybe for slightly younger kids or older, I mean, this is really an all-ages extravaganza, there's Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again, which I don't mm -hmm. know about you guys, but my daughter grew up with that first movie and uh, it's sort of beyond good and evil in our house. Like, there's not really any critiquing. It just it just simply is this force of nature that we watch Mamma Mia periodically. It goes back into rotation. And uh, so I haven't yet seen it with my daughter, but I'm really excited to. And uh, I think they kind of those kind of answer two different needs. You know, you can go to one that's a little more serious and something that you talk about afterwards and that raises some issues and makes you cry. And then you can just go to Mamma Mia and just come out dancing down the street. What is a good uh, first age for Mamma Mia, a film I have not seen? Uh, I don't know. My daughter probably saw it when she was five or so, just on home video. Um, it's got a couple of dirty jokes in it, but I mean, they're not going to get it at that age. Yeah. And really, it's just all about it was one of the first musicals she saw, you know, so I think it was one of the first places that she connected with that idea of, you know, people just bursting into song and dance on the street. How wonderful. And uh, 
And she's really gotten into musical since then. And as I said earlier, is now, you know, belting Mamma Mia songs for um, Slate podcast bonus segments. So it's been a big <laughs> impact on our life. And it's not for everyone. If you don't like musicals, you're probably not going to like Mamma Mia. But, um, but I find it wonderful, rollicking summer fun. Nice. Mm. All right, that's our show. Uh, if you have a question that you would like us to address, you can call us at 424-255-7833 or send us an email at momanddadatslate.com. Uh, let us know what you thought of this episode at our lively and active Facebook group. Uh, go to Facebook and search for Slate Parenting. Our show was produced by Benjamin Frisch. Special thanks to Dana Stevens for guesting this week. For Dana and Carvel Wallace, I'm Gabriel Roth. Rebecca Lavoie will be back. We'll see you next week. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.